So you can turn in your copy of the scriptures tonight to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, it should be up on the screen here for you shortly. I'll go and give you the main idea of tonight's sermon. This comes, uh, this quote from Danny and John Aiken. Religious ritual without the fear of God is meaningless. Instead, we should approach God reverently through Christ. As we've gone through the book of Ecclesiastes, if you're, if you're a guest with us, we've been working through this book. And uh, from my observation, it's a book that's a lot about frustration, about God frustrating our plans, our endeavors to find meaning and purpose and satisfaction apart from Him. You can try to seek it through building wealth, through being a hard worker even, good things like that, um, pursuing wisdom. You can seek meaning and a name for yourself, um, feeling good about yourself through uh, politics, through justice. You can seek to find purpose in all those things, but if you're doing it apart from the Lord, then it is vanity. It is meaningless. And, you know, to use the the tried and, and, and true analogy, it's like, you know, we look horizontally all around us for different things to find satisfaction in, but God means to us, and sometimes God needs to just put us flat on our faces so we're looking straight up and we, we're looking to Him. Now, one of the ways that we try to pursue meaning, purpose, satisfaction apart um, from God is, is actually through religion. And that is one of the most subtle ways, uh, one of the most dangerous ways of, of trying to find meaning apart from God. I'd say subtle because, um, you know, you can be doing all the right things, right? We're going we're gonna to look at three, you know, righteous acts of, of, of giving offerings, of praying prayers, of, of making vows to the Lord. Uh, you can seek to do all those things, um, but you can seek to do them selfishly, seeking your own glory in that. And I um, have confessed to you guys, I confessed to you last time I, I preached that I felt like I was seeking a name for myself, even through preaching. And I hate that my heart is prone to do that. Um, and I'm dependent on the mercy of the Lord to forgive me for that and, and to, um, to help me uh, to live righteously. But it's, it's dangerous, too, because we can go about doing such things um, and fool, our, fool everyone around us, right? And we can even fool ourselves. And so we need uh, to come tonight with hearts ready to hear, hear from God ways that we might be uh, sort of using religion rather than pursuing these rituals that we might know God, as, as Andrew, Andrew said. So let me read um, tonight from Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We'll read verses 1 through 7. Solomon writes, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. 
Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you should fear. Let's pray. Father, we, um, our confession tonight is that we, there's no good in us. As Paul writes, there's nothing good in me. That is in my flesh. There's a desire to do what is good. We, we want to come humbly. We want to hear from you. Um, but there is no ability to do it. So, God, if you don't help us, if you don't clear a space for us to hear you tonight and to respond in repentance, then we'll just be all about ourselves. God, would you meet us where we're at by the mercy of Christ when you exalt his name tonight as our only hope. Amen. So religious ritual without the fear of God is meaningless. We're going to look at three religious rituals, offerings, prayers, and vows that he mentions here and talk about how they're all meaningless apart from Christ, apart from fearing God. You see the last verse, verse 7, that God is the one we must fear. We should come with fear and reverence for the Lord, but we are guilty uh, sometimes, perhaps oftentimes, of of, of coming without that reverence. And so the first thing he mentions is, is offerings. And he says, uh, before we get into that, he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. He's, he's saying, watch the manner by which you enter this sanctuary. We're entering into, as I said, a, a physical sanctuary, coming to worship and adore the Lord together. But we're also coming into a spiritual sanctuary. We're coming before God in his presence. And we should Guard our steps. We should watch the manner in which we enter. And so, subtitle of tonight's message is How to Enter the Sanctuary. And the first thing is, is to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. It, when he says to listen, kind of wrapped up in that word is, is obedience. You're not just hearing just to hear it and it falls on deaf ears and doesn't produce anything. But we should come near ready to listen, ready to obey, ready to be corrected. Because we're prone to need correction, are we not? And the alternative would be to offer the sacrifice of fools. A foolish way to offer a sacrifice would be to think that you could somehow buy off God, that you, should, you could somehow manipulate Him. You know, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. And so the the fool thinks, you know, either God is his equal or he doesn't exist or, or he's somehow beneath him. And foolishly, he thinks that he can manipulate God, that, you know, somehow by offering that bull or that lamb, that um, you can somehow put God in your debt because you've done all the right things and you deserve for him to answer your prayers now. But what was the sacrifice meant to teach in the Old Testament? You know, when they came and they offered that very costly bull, or that pure and spotless lamb? What was the point of that? What was that supposed to teach? Is it that God needed a bull? That he was hungry for some, some beef? What is it that God needed a, a lamb? No, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and the lambs too. The purpose of that is to, is to preach to your own heart. So many of the rituals that we go through are meant to preach to our own hearts. And so when you're offering the sacrifice, you are coming acknowledging that something is wrong between your relationship with God. That you are a sinner, 
that you deserve judgment, what, what they would do is that uh, the head of the family would take that, that costly bull or that spotless lamb, lay his hand on that animal's head, and then confess his sins and the sins of his family. His head of the family, representing the family, he would confess sins. And he would acknowledge that the blood, the death that this animal is about to undergo is what I deserve for my sin. And were it not for this animal dying in my place, which speaks of Christ, were it not for this pure spotless animal, costly animal dying in my place, then I have no relationship with you. I have no fellowship with you. But this is what I deserve. I acknowledge, God, that I have been guilty of ignoring you. I've been guilty of giving you the cold shoulder. I've been guilty of hardening my heart to you. But I'm coming now ready to hear ready to repent. I haven't been listening, but I'm listening now. And I'm ready to submit. Essentially, you're coming with the attitude that you, you have no good. You've done no good. That the only good you've done, he did it through you. You have nothing to offer. And you deserve death. But you're, ready, you're drawing near with a humble heart, ready to hear, to repent, and, and submit. And so I'd ask us even now as we give space in the sermon to, to proclaim God's word, are you listening? Not to me, but are you, are you listening to the Lord to speak to you, to correct you, as a good father does? The second ritual um, that you can go through in a, a meaningless, foolish way is prayer. He says here, be not rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Reminds me of, of Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus is, is teaching basically the same thing. That, um, you know, the Gentiles were, were guilty. You see this in the account of, of uh, the prophets of Baal when, when they were offering a sacrifice to Baal and, he, and Elijah was offering a sacrifice to the living God to prove who was the, the true and living God. And you see them saying the same thing over and over and over again. And Elijah says, maybe you should speak a little louder. Maybe your God's on the, on the toilet is basically what the Hebrew's saying there. You know, maybe you should do a little bit more to get his attention. But we shouldn't have that attitude of, of many words trying to, thinking that the manner in which we pray is going to somehow get God's attention and twist his arm and manipulate him. I like the way uh, Eugene Peterson paraphrases that passage in, in Matthew 6. He says, when you come before God, don't turn that into a theatrical production. All these people making a regular show out of their prayers, hoping for stardom. Do you think God sits in a box seat? Are you somehow impressed by that? He says, here's what I want you to do as an alternative. Find a quiet, secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage. The focus will shift from you to God and you will begin to sense His grace. The world is full of so-called prayer warriors who are prayer ignorant. They're full of formulas, excuse me, they're for, full of formulas and programs and advice, peddling techniques for getting what you want from God. Don't fall for that nonsense. This is your father you are dealing with. And he knows better than you what you need. 
With a God like this loving you, you can pray very simply like this. Our Father, who is in heaven. We come before him as children. Submitting to him as Father. God, you know what's best for me. You're not my equal. I can't tell you what to do. You know, that's my story. I've shared with you guys before. I was listening to this passage, to that actual paraphrase, and, and was just convicted that I had been living much of my Christian life thinking that if I did all the right things that I could somehow uh, put God in my debt and he would be obligated to bless me and deliver me and from things I struggled with and give me what I wanted, and I was bitter when he didn't. But I was corrected to see that God is my Father. I don't tell him what to do. He tells me what to do. And yet there's refuge there. There's faithful love, committed love. And there's the the promise of protection, promise of provision. I learn from him. He doesn't learn from me. So application here, don't let your words be few in prayer. Or in other words, don't try to manipulate God with how you pray. He says here, God is in heaven. You are on earth. Recognize God is high above you. He is the most high. And you are a little insignificant one here on earth. And he says it's a fantasy, really, to think that you could manipulate God. He says for a dream comes with much busyness. Basically, when when you're busy, when when you have a lot of care and anxieties on your heart, you tend to dream more vividly, it seems. And so, in the same way, a fool's voice comes with many words, with with all these, if you think you, that you have to pray a certain way in order to get God to pay attention to you and, and answer your prayers, that's foolish. That's a fantasy to think that you could pray a certain way and get him to, to make him respond. And the third ritual that he touches on here is making vows. Making vows. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? A vow, maybe we don't use the same language, but making a vow is making a commitment. It's making a, a pledge. Very often in the, in the Old Testament, uh, you would see a, a vow coupled with a request. I think the best-known example would be of, um, of Hannah, who was um, in, infertile, without child for, for several years, and she just longed to have a baby, longed for God to give her a child. And she said, God, if you will give me a child, then I will offer him up to your service in, in the sanctuary, in the temple. And so she, she is given uh, the baby boy Samuel, and she is faithful to that vow. She keeps that vow, and she offers Samuel up to the temple service. Here's another one from Numbers 21. Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites. And they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So they named the place Hormah, which means destruction. They said, God, if you will give us victory in this battle, then we will destroy these cities, their property, as you have commanded. And God gives them that victory, and they are faithful to follow through on that vow. And so we see with those examples in Scripture, it's not bad to make a vow. But it is bad to make a rash vow, and it's bad not to follow through 
on your vows. A good example of a rash vow, you may know the story of Jephthah. I can't say that very well. Jephthah um, in the book of Judges, who he said, God, if you give me victory in battle, the first thing that comes running out of my house when I get home, I will offer it as a sacrifice to you. Apparently he assumed uh, some animal was going to run out of his house, but his daughter is the first one running out of the house. And he offers his daughter as a sacrifice to the Lord. That would be an example of when you shouldn't keep a vow, okay? If you make a rash vow, you, you don't cover up sin with sin, but you confess it as sin. And that was a rash vow, and you, he should not have covered up sin with sin. But, um, but otherwise, we should follow through with our vows. And, and we see that God is not pleased when we make a vow to him, and we don't follow through. It says he's angry, and it says that he will destroy the work of our hands. And it implies here that we should be making vows. It says, when you vow a vow to God. Look there verse 4. When you vow a vow to God. And it also implies that accountability should be built into those vows. Because it says that apparently the temple messenger knew about this vow that this uh, person made. And, and the temple messenger would have come to, to collect on whatever you know, was vowed or, or, or um, promised as a sacrifice. To give us a couple examples of where we make vows or we should be making vows, would be in marriage. And we have a crowd of witnesses witnessing those vows who will help hold us to account in keeping those vows. And also baptism. And every one of you here who is a, a baptized believer, you, you were making a vow at your baptism, were you not? Where you were saying, I am, you as you went down into the water, you said, I am dead to living for me. It's no longer about me. I'm not pursuing sin anymore. But instead, I've been raised up to new life. And I haven't been raised up to new life so I can live for myself again. But I've been raised up to new life that I might offer myself to you, Jesus, and in partnership with you. You know, Do your will. Do your work and walk with you. And you made that vow here publicly, right? I hope no one has been at home baptizing themselves in the bathtub. Okay, when you, when you make a vow... Like baptism, we make that vow publicly. And we, hope, we help one another to keep that vow, right? We do get off course, do we not? We, we get off course in, in following after Jesus. We need correction. We need accountability. And that's why we make that vow publicly. And in terms of how to enter the sanctuary, if that's our, our, our working title tonight, what does this have to do with how we should enter the sanctuary? Well, every week when you come, into the sanctuary, it is an opportunity for you to recommit yourself to the Lord. You've made that vow once as, at your baptism that you would follow the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You would love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you come renewing that vow. And we're going to give you some space here in a, in a little bit to um, take some time to confess sin. Um, as would have been the practice here, and we're going to give you some time, some space also to renew the, your vows. And I say up here, commit yourself to God, and by grace, honor your commitments. Uh, I add by grace there, um, very intentionally, I um, was helping out with, with baptisms at, at the Summit Church, where I used to be um, a member. And um, I'll never forget, there was this young man who I was... Uh, helping to counsel as he was thinking about 
baptism. He, he was professing belief in Jesus. He wanted to give his life to follow Jesus, but he kept wanting to say, uh, you know, when we would ask him the question, would you, are you committing yourself to follow Jesus for the rest of your life, to be faithful to the end? And he would say, I hope so. And, you know, just internally, I'm like, bro, <laughs> are you making the commitment or not? And, um, and tried to, to counsel him and, and thought I had done a good job, but then he, uh, he, he gets into the baptismal pool and, and, the, and the pastor is about to baptism him and he asks him that same question, are you giving your life to, to follow Jesus? Will you be faithful to him through the end? And he says again, I hope so. And the pastor hesitated like, whoa, I'm not, I'm not putting you under and, and if this is not a solemn commitment. And I think probably to that young man that it, he seemed humble. Like, he doesn't know the future, right? We're not God. We don't know um, everything. We don't know what the future holds. And so he, his best intentions were to follow Christ, but maybe, um, maybe he would be unsuccessful in that. But our confidence in persevering to the end, is it in ourselves or is it in the Lord? You know, we sing here often, He will hold me fast. Jesus is our hope for being faithful to Jesus. He promised that he would give the Holy Spirit. He, 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 says, he gives us promises like Philippians 1.6 that I am confident that he who started a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of glory. We call Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith. And so as you make vows, solemnly ask the Lord to help you to keep those commitments and bank on his grace on his promises to help you keep those commitments chiefly that commitment to follow him all of your days so to sum up religious ritual without the fear of god is meaningless to to come without fear to thinking that you're somehow equals with god that you can somehow he might even be beneath you that somehow you can twist his arm and manipulate him to doing what you want meaningless foolish and to think that you can uh, somehow find meaning for yourself by how good your prayers sound or, or how generous you are in, in your offerings that you make or how lofty your commitments are. It's just it's all meaningless. God will destroy the work of your hands when you do that. It says he is angered by that. He is offended by that. He is grieved by that. All of that is foolish. All of that is meaningless. And it only makes God angry. Instead, as an alternative, the only reverent way to approach God is through Christ. It says here in verse 7 that God is the one you must fear as you come into the sanctuary. How do you fear the Lord? How do we come in with fear? The only reverent, fearful way to approach God is through Christ. The only way to be saved is through Christ. You might say, saved from what? Saved from God's wrath. God is angry at sin. He is offended by it. He is grieved by it. And he is patient that we might repent, that we might accept the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. But if not, there is everlasting torment, weeping and gnashing of teeth, judgment under the hand of God. But you can be saved. You can acknowledge that you are a sinner. And that you need, you deserve judgment. And you need a Savior. That you can't save yourself. 
and you can accept gratefully that sacrifice on your behalf and accept the righteousness that he gives you in Christ and be called son and daughter. That is available to you if you have not made that decision. And we are available to talk if you would like to talk about that. But how do you, let's say you've already made that confession. You've already, you, you are a baptized believer. It's genuine. And um, you've given your life to follow Christ. You, your confession is that you are a sinner, that Jesus died for you, and that he's made you righteous through Christ. Well, what does it look like for us to approach God tonight? What does it look like for us to approach God each week through Christ? First of all, it is to acknowledge that you are a sinner and that you don't deserve to be here. Not just here, but you don't deserve to be in the presence of God. That's what this bread preaches. 